Good morning and welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Knockham Siegel Network, knockhamsegel.com, and on the NSN app. And it has been quite a week for politics. Once again, we have primary elections. Like every Tuesday, we have this big event, you know, like a playoff game, if you will, in, in for certain teams. And these are internal teams. Um, so there's all kinds of things going on. Idaho, Pennsylvania. Um, I mean, just some really, really interesting races that have been, um, you know, that have really told us a little bit about the direction of both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. Let's not think for ourselves that uh, only Republicans have the monopoly on drama these days, although the soap opera seems to be a little bit more interesting given the continued influence of President Trump on the Republican Party and the various factions and the various fighting that goes on. But that's going on on the Democratic side as well. So as I said, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Idaho, and there were other uh, primaries, very interesting Senate, Governor, Congress. Um, So some of the interesting characters that have both won and lost uh, this past Tuesday. Although the big one, the big race that many were looking at was the Pennsylvania Senate, U.S. Senate race to replace the retiring Pat Toomey. And that was a three-way race between uh, Dr. Oz, who is now in the lead by a razor-thin 0.2%. 0.2%, that's right. Uh, uh, lead over David McCormick, a head fund manager. And uh, you have a really... Uh, you know, third candidate in there who kind of came out of nowhere. I mean, I, and when I mean nowhere, I mean really, really nowhere. Um, and uh, she came. I mean, the vote counting is far from over here, so I know we're, we're still gonna say we're gonna still say this, but the vote counting is way is gonna you know paper ballots and so much so. Uh, not to digress for a second, but the but President Trump said yesterday. Uh, that uh, Oz should just declare victory. So that would be, uh, he should just say, okay, I won. And that's it. And we will now, uh, we will now move on. And, you know, they could just bypass the idea of actually counting the votes. Now, Oz was really saying none of that. Um, He was basically saying that we will count every vote and we will leave them prevail. Um, But the idea, I guess, is that for some for uh, well let, let's just say that it's it seems that President Trump does not trust the vote counting in Pennsylvania in general um, because it seems that he just doesn't uh, well either way you know you you go ahead and you decide to uh, you decide to you are winning so you protect the lead and the way you protect the lead and. With regard to Trump's thinking, is you just say I won, and then let somebody else uh, disagree in a way. Um, anyway, uh, so let's just talk about. Um, as I said, there were three way three way primary. Kathy Barnett was the third one. She tied herself to Doug Mastriano, who, who uh, is the Republican now, the Republican nominee for governor in Pennsylvania. Now Mastriano is as as is the term now ultra mega. Uh, he denies that Joe Biden won the presidency. He says that the vote in Pennsylvania was fraudulent and that it should be overturned and Donald Trump is the rightful president. 
Um, now, these are uh, some things, so clearly some policies and some statements that will excite the Republican base, at least a percentage of it, but they might not go ahead and excite the electorate in the general election. Running against Josh Shapiro now, the Democratic nominee, current attorney general. Uh, let's see, you know, how mainstream this thing goes. Anyway, Mastriano was tied to Kathy uh, Barnett, who was totally came totally out of nowhere, also as the kind of more authentic ultra MAGA candidate in this race. And even though McCormick and Oz spent millions, literally millions of dollars between themselves and PACs and others aligned with them, uh, now she fell short in the third in third place. But it wasn't as if it didn't change the contours of the race so much so that Trump blamed the closeness of Oz's race. And he's probably right about that on the fact that uh, Kathy Barnett got went ahead and took uh, such a large percentage of the votes uh, in that case. So let's just uh, so let's just unpack a little bit, you know, where 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 it was now Ted Budd in North Carolina, uh, Trump candidate, Trump back candidate early on. It uh, was a, a, congr- a congressman was endorsed by Trump and taking on a former governor, Pat McCrory. Now, the amazing part of this is that Pat McCrory was probably as governor of North Carolina was probably mo- one of the most conservative governors in the entire country. In fact, over and over was you know talked about as being super ultra conservative. Well, that doesn't seem to matter anymore in today's Republican Party. It's you're either you know full on MAGA, uh, full on MAGA election was rigged type, or you are a rhino, which is Republican in name only. So that is a, you know, interesting thing. I mean, he, Bud literally trounced um, McGrory. Now, interestingly, as uh, the big race to watch on the house, well, it was the Madison Cawthorn, Western North Carolina mountain region, race where he was running for the f- his first re-election. The entire establishment was against him because the guy literally is, I would tell you, unhinged. Um, just the things that have gone on in a tumultuous two years. I mean, if you like the spotlight on you, then Madison Cawthorn is doing all the right things or was doing all the right things. If you want to win re-election and you want to somehow have an impact as a legislator, then he was doing all the wrong things. I mean, this guy was not only criticizing his colleagues for these statements, which were, he admitted apparently that were untrue about uh, licentiousness and all kinds of uh, vile actions on Capitol Hill, but carrying, trying to sneak guns onto planes, driving without a license. Uh, I mean, sexual harassment pictures with his cousin, I mean, strange, just strange, strange, all you could say was strange. And the amazing part is he still won 28,000 votes or so. He still came within about 1,000 votes of winning his primary. Uh, It's amazing that this still happened. And, you know, Trump at first says, didn't, wasn't endorsing him, did endorse him, obviously a Trump favorite, but he went ahead and I'm not saying we should like care about all the Trump endorsements, but Trump makes a big deal about the endorsements. So therefore, you got to look at them and you got to say, okay, you know, where is that? You know, how does that? How is that playing out? How are those endorsements playing out? It obviously matters as we get closer to election day and we go further down the road 
towards the midterms and then obviously to 2024 is what is going on with that. So Cawthorn uh, said that, you know, the, he praised Trump. And then the day before, I believe, Election Day, Trump said, let's give the guy a second chance. Well, obviously, most voters were not willing to do that. And he was unseated. So this is a, um, you know, interesting. And again, just to exhaust the Republican side here, uh, another big election where Trump took on a very conservative, but this time was a sitting governor. Now, Pat McGrory was not the sitting governor of North Carolina, uh, but the for, was a former governor. The sitting governor, and this while I have, have implications uh, in the upcoming Georgia primary, uh, took on Brad Little in Idaho. And of course, uh, he definitely had no issue uh, dispatching the lieutenant governor. This is a very interesting race, of course, that you have a um, uh, you have a sitting super conservative governor in the in um, sorry in Brad Little. With a lieutenant governor, Janice McGeehan, McGeechan, running against him, okay? And this was a, a case, I mean, the Idaho, Idaho is one of the reddest states in the country. I mean, incredibly so. And on top of that, you have the, one of the more conservative governors in Brad Little, and then you have a lieutenant governor who's even more to the right. So, like, you have somebody who is a, you know, could be you know, Freedom Caucus type, but then somebody who's that is not even conservative enough. And Trump endorsed uh, McGeechan against the sitting governor, Brad Little, similar to what's going on in Georgia, where Trump endorsed David Perdue against Brian Kemp, the sitting governor. And it Brad Little trounced, uh, when I say trounced, by 20 points, uh, McGeechan. That was a third party uh, person in the race as well. But uh, who got another 10%. But this was a, you know, all around the state, except for the far, far north of the state, the Idaho panhandle, which is a little, which is kind of known as a haven for white supremacists and secessionists, so people who want to create their own country up there. So that is one of those interesting uh, pieces of that. And who knows that how that will shake up? Will a similar thing happen in Georgia? So what are the takeaways? What are we supposed to? Uh, to learn. Well, back to Doug Mastriano. Oh, yeah, we didn't talk about the Democrats yet. Okay, so John Fetterman, this is uh, the Lieutenant Governor of Pennsylvania. Lieutenant Governor of Pennsylvania, uh, a big guy with a little goatee and wears shorts and hoodies all the time, everywhere. Will he wear them uh, potentially if he wins on the floor of the U.S. Senate? Uh, unclear. Uh, a Bernie Sanders type Socialist tendencies, wants to legalize marijuana nationally. I mean, his guy's, um, you know, he's he's to the left. You know, he defeated the poster boy for kind of the moderate Biden wing of the party, uh, Connor Lamb. Connor Lamb, if you remember, was a very hyped, very exciting special election in western Pennsylvania. That was a Democratic victory a couple of years ago. And Connor Lamb was kind of that new face of the uh, veteran prosecutor. He's got all the attributes that that the Democrats would want in a tough uh, defense, tough on crime type of guy. And, you know, central casting, if you will. Well, he did not excite the electorate at all. Fetterman was uh, beat him handily. 
uh, very handily. And Fetterman, interestingly, had a stroke about three, uh, sorry, about four days before the election. Couldn't even attend his own party, had a pacemaker implanted. So this is an interesting dynamic here that we don't know who the who the Republican is going to be. Fetterman is a little bit to the left of where most Democrats would feel comfortable with. But at the same time, on the right, running for governor in Pennsylvania, you have something in the person of Doug Mastriano, who is way far to the right of where many Pennsylvanians probably be. Remember, Trump lost Pennsylvania. And we're looking at potentially, you, you know, somebody who is far, far to the right even of Trump in, in many ways, uh, in the kind of top of the ticket. I know we, you know, when we think of federal elections there, but the governor's race is always the kind of the top of the ticket race. And you have a relative moderate in, well, relative, everything is relative these days with regard to Josh Shapiro. So we'll have to see, you know, where that goes with the ticket. Many Republicans were telling Trump, please do not endorse Mastriano, but he did uh, over uh, a former, one of his earliest supporters, Lou Barletta, congressman from central Pennsylvania. And uh, Lou Barletta just did not, I guess, excite Trump enough on that. Um, so aside from that, progressives had a very big night uh, in Pennsylvania. The candidate Summer Lee was leading Steve Irwin. That was a progressive versus moderate race, as well as uh, Kurt Schrader, a longtime congressman in Oregon. Looks like he might lose out there, uh, also losing to a progressive challenger. So let's... um. Let's just talk a little bit close to home now that we've digested this um, to some degree. And there's going to be a lot that goes on. Every week we got more primaries. But right now, the focus of a lot of the country politically is on this story that continues to, well, be, uh, you know, it's kind of top of the radar screen with regard to the redistricting. And the maps came out on Monday, the congressional maps. And as well as state Senate maps and the Democrats obviously were devastated. We knew that they were not going to be unhappy, but they were absolutely devastated. Eight Democrats sitting congressional Democrats actually live outside of their districts, which is a little bit unheard of. But, you know, this is what they should have at least contemplated. The Democrats were in New York were so because of one party rule, and this is what it gets you. This this group think were so overconfident about their ability to redistrict that they just didn't pay attention to the law. They didn't pay attention to what the Constitution says and the fact that we're a referendum and the fact that the voters really wanted independent redistricting, something more independent that would take and they wanted competitive districts. They didn't want this twenty-three to three or twenty-four or twenty-two to four type of map where all the Republicans in the state are packed into a couple districts and with no possibility of any competitive races. That's what voters in New York wanted. Now you could say, oh, the voters voted for Joe Biden uh, in big numbers in 2020. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean that they want to be Democrats forever or only support the Democratic Party. Most voters want a choice. They want a choice in the, gen in the general election as well. Most voters in the country, including in New York, are middle of the road. Many of them are not even enrolled in any party and they still vote. They're enro not enrolled in any party. That doesn't mean you should be disqualified from participating in the process. But many Democrats feel, well, if you're not a Democrat in New York, you shouldn't bother. You shouldn't have any rights in order to do that was the map that they drew, which was deemed to be unconstitutional, but they were so confident. Remember the trial judge, McAllister up in Steuben County, he 
decided uh, that he was going to give the legislature another chance. Go ahead and give me more maps. You have 14 days to do it and give me new maps. They decided, nope, nope. Uh, whether the Senate the Senate leadership under Mike Janaris and Andrew Stewart-Cousins or the Assembly leadership under Carl Hasty, they just decided, eh, we're not going to bother because we are very confident we will prevail, that our maps will prevail in the courts. Well, guess what? They were wrong. And therefore, they took it out of their hands. They said, okay, fine. If the legislature is not going to act, I will appoint a special master and act. And act he did. And he put some really, I mean, crazy matchups. Now, I would say, as is their custom, as is the custom of many Democrats these days, if they don't get their way, what did they say? He's a racist. And sure enough, Hakeem Jeffries, the number five uh, congressman from Brooklyn, number five in the House leadership, basically said that the judge is a racist, said unelected, unelected. Now, of course, judges are um, judges are elected in New York, but let's just say uh, this map, Jeffrey said, is the product of an out-of-town special master and a judicial overseer, both of whom happen to be white men. Wow. He called it part of a vicious national pattern targeting the Congressional Black Caucus that would make Jim Crow blush. Now, if you see my eyes rolling over and over over this statement, yes, indeed they are. Hakeem Jeffries should know better. He has known better. He's not known to be a firebrand type of guy, but obviously he feels, oh, this is a racist map. Why? Because it was drawn by two white men. And of course, yes, they had this idea that we don't want to, that people had to travel five hours up to Steuben County to Bath, New York, up in the uh, southern part of the Finger Lakes region. And that was wrong because people of color can't get there. Well, I mean, a lot of upstate New Yorkers can't get to New York City easily. I mean, I'm just saying it's like there's always going to be a gripe on the part of that. That doesn't make it racist. The fact that they have a white man doing it and they have a white judge, that doesn't make it racist. The fact that these everybody and good government groups and many nonpartisan groups felt that these maps are a lot fairer than the ones that he and his team created doesn't make it racist. But of course, the long knives are out right now and they are out for Democrats against each other. We have this incredible story playing out. Now, caveat, the lines are not final. They will actually be final tomorrow on Friday. The judge actually, there could be some tweaks. There could be things that go along with them. But you have this incredible saga coming, playing out with Sean Patrick Maloney, who is the chairman of the DCCC. That's the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. And he is the, basically the guy in charge of the campaigns around the country. Now, Sean Patrick Maloney lives in Cold Spring in Putnam County, and he's been there, I don't know, three, four, five terms. So he's, uh, so he's there. He lives there. Now, most of his district was to the north of him. He was in the southern part of his district, to the north and the west. Um, and now they drew a district where his home is actually to the in the northern part of the district, so most of the district to the south of him. Now, 75% of that district is represented by Mondaire Jones, who's only been there for one term. This is his first term. But Mondaire Jones moved out of the district. He lives in White Plains now, uh, which is in now in the district of somebody else. That happens um, in this redistricting people town. Now, everybody's free to move. In fact, you don't actually have to live in the district in which you run. However, everybody's criticizing Sean Patrick Baloney and look, people should be entitled to do what they want to do of essentially being a racist as well, because he announced 
that he was going to run in the district in which he lives, which is the 17th district. And sorry, and forcing Mondaire Jones to choose either running a primary against Sean Patrick Maloney in the 17th district or in the 16th district where he lives against Jamal Bowman, who is another progressive, probably more progressive than Mondaire Jones, a member of the squad. And we'll get to that uh, pretty shortly as far as the latest exploits of the squad and what they mean to us. Uh, So they have Maloney is said, okay, I'm running here. Nobody's running. This is where I live, et cetera. Okay. I mean, politics aside, should, is the chairman of the GCCC, is he being self-serving in the fact that he is, uh, you know, is he being self-serving in the fact that he is saying, okay, this is my district, even though his district is essentially more to the north of him. I mean, that's, that really is the district in which he did represent, but that is a more conservative district, a district that is definitely a swing. It's probably a Biden plus five, and he'd be running into a Biden plus 10 district. You know, you look at the numbers and you say, hey, you know, I would rather run in a district that's a little bit, uh, that's a little bit better. You know, this is kind of summed up by Dave Wasserman uh, from the Cook Political Report, the, uh, in a great tweet, he says that the sitting DCCC chair is willing to risk a primary against his own Democratic neighbor to run in a Biden plus 10 seat, meaning a better district for him, rather than run a Biden plus 5 seat, where most of the current constituents live, says everything you need to know about the political environment right now, which is basically that Democrats know that they are going to get beaten badly this year. So Jones is now crying racism. He is basically saying that... And enlisting other other people in the effort, uh, the director of the Working Families Party basically says his decision to jump into a neighboring district and challenge a fellow incumbent is self-serving and unbecoming of the leader of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. And Richie Torres says that Jones should be considered the incumbent there. So there's a lot of people out there to basically saying that, and and of course, uh, Jones said the fact that Maloney told Jones that he was running in a tweet and didn't have the courtesy of call him tells you everything you need to know about John Patrick Maloney. So this is a, um, this is an interesting one. I mean, here they, you have two incumbents essentially going at it with each other. But the question is, you know, why is this expectation from a freshman like Mondaire Jones saying I should cruise to reelection in a district that I don't live? Um, now, let's talk about a district where two people do live, which is two Democratic heavyweights. And I don't mean that in a uh, physical term um, because, you know, that's uh, Jerry Nadler used to be, well, whatever, I'll put this aside. But uh, heavyweights in a sense, two committee, sitting committee chairmen, it's kind of unheard of that you would have two sitting committee chairmen, Jerry Nadler of Judiciary and Carolyn Maloney of Government Oversight running against each other in this now East-West District covering uh, the middle of Manhattan, the Upper East Side and Upper West Side, who've traditionally been on totally separate districts. So much you had this funny filing uh, from Jewish organizations talking about the Jewish community is different on the Upper East Side and the Upper West Side, and they don't go to the same shuls, and somehow we should not be com- combined into two districts. Um, some of the filings in this, I know it's going to be really boring, for, uh, particularly from the Jewish community. Maybe someday we'll, we'll read them in this court case have been uh, altogether comical. And just uh, it's amazing somehow how different Jewish organizations and different Jewish leaders, uh, quote unquote, can be uh, hoodwinked into go ahead and support some of these uh, some of these positions. 
Okay, so why are we talking about? So, by the way, Mondo Jones is not a slouch. I mean, the guy has two point nine million dollars in the bank as of last filing. Uh, Jamal Bowman himself is who is a squad member. Just to the south of him, Jamal Bowman has about five hundred thousand dollars. Now, Bowman probably thought he was going to cruise to reelection because it's uh, he was running in a very blue district. But the likely, you know, it's very possible that Mondo Jones wins that sixteenth district. He's a little more suited politically for Westchester then would be Jamal Bowman, who's had far left politics. You one would figure that Westchester would be a little more favorable, uh, Southern Westchester to Mondaire Jones. Okay, but let's talk about the squad for a second, because when we think about why it doesn't matter, why Democratic, we you know, many people in the community, oh, we'll just vote Republican, and why do Democratic primaries and Democrats in the uh, in Congress don't matter? Let's talk about H.R. 1123, House Resolution 1123, Miss Talib, Rashida Talib, back in the spotlight. Miss Ocasio Cortez, Miss Ilan Omar, Miss McCollum, Miss Newman, Mr. Bowman, and Miss Bush. Okay, the squad members introduce a resolution recognizing the Nakba and Palestinian refugees' rights. Whereas the United States United Nations General Assembly recommended on November 29, 1947, to partition Palestine into two states against the wishes of Palestine's majority indigenous inhabitants. Here we go. That's the first bomb. Of course, Jews are not included in the indigenous inhabitants because, of course, Jews don't really, according to them and according to their narrative, they don't really belong in Palestine. And then they talks about the fact that the state of Israel declared its independence and they created 250,000 to 300,000 Palestinian refugees. And the war ended. There were now 750,000 Palestinian refugees. Roughly 75% of the indigenous population that had lived in the land areas that became Israel. Once again, this is counting only Arabs in their count. And 1949, Israel depopulated more than 400 Palestinian villages. I mean, all this is just a incredible uh, one factual historical error, intentional, obviously, again, once that once one after the other and talks about the right of return and then talks about the fact that the house should go ahead and commemorate the Nakba through official recognition and remembrance, reject efforts to enlist, engage, or otherwise associate the United States government with denial of the Nakba. I'm not sure what it means to deny the Nakba. I mean, if you, okay. And continue to support the provision of social service to Palestinian refugees through the UNRWA, which is of course the, Agency within the UN, a special agency just for the Palestinian people that perpetuates this continued misery of Palestinian refugees by keeping them in refugee status for generations and generations and generations, which is uh, obviously has not actually helped their lot at all and has, well, let's that, that kind of tells you everything you need to know about this. The idea that the US government should somehow recognize this, this lie this catastrophe, this idea that the Jewish people have no connection to the state of Israel, that the fact is, I mean, the one true thing here is that they said very str- strongly is that the Arabs rejected the partition plan of 1947. And, now they, and, they, and that is a true statement. It does not even acknowledge the fact that Israel was attacked by six Arab countries. And it is just, uh, well, it's just one canard after another so, you know, what is, I mean, it's just, it's really, it's really amazing. Um, it's really amazing that they would be so willing and a congressman, you know, various congress people here from New York, including some that have uh, substantial 
Jewish constituencies, they would go ahead and uh, sponsor something like this, which is kind of has no historical basis. So Josh Gottheimer, a moderate Democrat, says the resolution has no hope of going forward. It seeks to rewrite history and question Israel's right to exist. It's unfortunate that this histor- histrionic and invidious resolution was introduced now, particularly as we see continued progress in efforts to normalize relations between Israel and its neighbors in the region. It's almost like, as he's pointing out, that Rashida Tlaib and her squad are unwilling to acknowledge even the fact that peace between Israel and her Arab neighbors is a good thing. They want it to be a perpetual state of conflict. Lee Zeldin, congressman from Eastern New York running for governor, called it the latest in a long line of anti-Semitic, anti-Israel statements and policies and actions by the most radical voices in the Democratic Party. And that's what it is. This is basically a denial of the Jewish rights to the land of Israel. Straight up. That's what it is. And that's what you get if we continue to allow the squad to be empowered. Last word here, um, just coming from various, uh, well, a, a Democratic commentator essentially saying about the Democrats being far progressive and their policies than the rest of the country. The average congressional progressive caucus leader is from a Democrat, Democratic plus 19 district. Now, that works on the Republican side as well. Um, they have no ability to understand what voters in the middle want, and the same way many Republicans do as well. But there are a lot of Democrats who are out there now acknowledging that. That's it for this week here on Spin Class, here on the Nachman Siegel Network. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Joseph. See you next week. Oh,